James chapter 4. It's been a couple weeks since we looked at the end of chapter 3, which was the, the thematic peak of James' letter. And if the end of chapter 3 is the thematic peak, the beginning of chapter 4 is the sermonic peak, where the preacher, if James was here preaching to us, would be the most animated. If you haven't been with us as we've preached through James, you're walking in. Imagine walking into the middle of the sermon right when the preacher is, is just bringing it. And you feel like you got punched in the gut and you just got through the door. So, <clears throat> my apologies ahead of time. And it's been two weeks, so we had a little cooling off period. Remember, this letter was intended to be read out loud from beginning to end in one sitting as James preaching a sermon, though he wasn't there in person. The church, the fledgling Christian church, made mostly of converted Jews at this time, scattered due to persecution, this letter was going out to the churches that had scattered. And so it's intended to be a a sermon read out loud, addressing various issues James knew was going on in the churches. And he's been building his way up to the most serious of all issues. But if he started there at the beginning of the letter, you might lose your audience right away. That's not how you talk to people. That's not how you counsel That's not how you disciple. You don't just have people come in through the door and just lay into them. And so he starts with a greeting and consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. Hey, I know you're going through trials. I know they're difficult. Consider it all joy because God is strengthening your faith and drawing you closer to Him through these things. And little by little, he's been sprinkling in Some things he wants us to consider. Hey, we say we're God's people. Then why is it that we do this? We say that riches don't matter, but then we show favoritism to the rich. We say God's word is important and it's what saved us. Then why are we so quick to speak and so slow to hear when we should be slow to speak and quick to hear? And so he's kind of been rebuking us little by little as the letter goes along. But if this was read in one sitting, we would be approaching the peak. And two weeks ago, we hit the thematic peak. And he said, who among you is wise and understanding? Let's just get to the root of the issue. Who thinks they've got it all together and their wisdom is the wisdom? The thematic peak. Who among you is wise and understand? We said wisdom isn't just knowledge, but it's the ability to take knowledge and experience and look at each situation in life and apply that knowledge in a way that would bring the best result. And by saying best, we're automatically saying that there are better ways to do things. But what we need to realize is that God's way are the best ways. In fact, they're not just the best as in the best among many choices, Jesus said He is the way, not a better way. We don't preach to a 
lost world. Hey, come to church because Jesus has a little bit better way. No, I'm good with my way. No, there's only two ways, and one leads to death and separation and judgment, and one leads to life, an abundant life. One is, leads to being enemies with God, and one leads to being friends with God. There's no neutrality with God. No fence sitters in the kingdom of God. Either you're for God or you're against Him. Let me read James 4, 1 to 10. And I'll attempt to read it the way I think James would have had it read. And remember, we would have built up, built up, built up to chapter 4. So I'm going to lay into you a little bit. Let the Holy Spirit do His work among us. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. But He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Amen. We could pray and go. And that will preach. That then it hit you right between the eyes of your heart. Then perhaps there's a heart of stone or a wall you've put up to the things of God. May God break through that wall this morning. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you in the original, in the Greek, the word pothen, from where? In the King James it says from whence. I love that word. From whence? Polemoi, where we get the word polemic. Polemic. That would be a, a, a book or a speech where you're setting two opposing viewpoints against each other, opposite poles. Where do polemics or quarrels? And then Pothin again, from whence. Twice he uses the word from where or for, from whence. It's redundant. It's so redundant that in the English we just say what is the source of quarrels. 
None of your translations, as far as I know, and I, I looked at all the most common ones, no English translation says, what is the source of quarrels and what is the source of conflicts? It's redundant. Why would you have to say it twice? Well, it's there to be emphatic, not to draw our attention to the details of the conflict, because that's what everybody does in the middle of conflict. Well, he did this, and she did this, and da 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 yeah, but what's the source? I just told you. No, that's not the source. Those are the details. If you've ever tried to help someone in the middle of conflict, you could sit for hours and listen to the he said, she said, and he did, and she did, and blah, 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 blah. And you're... But what is at the source? What is causing the conflicts? is not the source, your pleasures, that wage war in your members. The problem is me. The problem is you. I can't say the problem is you, because that is what we say. Why are you in conflict? Because of you. If you would just knock it off and agree with me, we wouldn't have conflict. The natural man thinks that mankind is getting better, more sophisticated, wiser. Certainly, we've made great technological advances, and we use those advances to wage war more effectively, more devastatingly. There's still wars and rumors of wars. Our nation is in such conflict that our two political parties can't agree on anything. Churches split. Churches filled with people who humbly bowed their knee before the cross of Christ, said, I surrender all. I am worthless. I have nothing good to offer. All my righteous deeds are as filthy rags. We know all the right words to say, and then we'll turn around and fight with another brother or sister filled with the same Spirit of God. Where are these conflicts coming from? Inside my heart, inside your heart. Man's wisdom says man is getting better, but he's not. Only through the grace of God can man hope to solve our conflicts. Bring me a humble heart and a humble heart, and I'll show you the absence of conflict. I can show you gracious disagreement which is okay. But if you want to see fights and wars and quarrels, I'll show you two prideful hearts clashing. Man's wisdom would say the source of conflict is the other person or just neutral external circumstances. 
We'll take marriage as our example because that's the most common conflict that we see in the church, unfortunately. Either my spouse is the problem or I just have a bad marriage. Folks, there's no such thing as a bad marriage as the source of conflict. Well, we were just one of the unlucky ones who we reached into a hat and pulled out the bad marriage, and this couple pulled out the good one. That's not how it works. And you say, well, let me throw that one back in the hat and try again. Yeah. And you never dealt with the source of conflict in your heart. So grieve and mourn and weep, as James says, over our stubborn pride that causes conflict. But don't go home today just beat up with your tail between your legs. Resolve to say, what is going on in my heart? I, I, I want to deal with these conflicts once and for all. To the glory of God, for the good of His church, and really for my own good. I'm sick and tired of fighting, aren't you? Unless it's your profession. <laughs> That's a different kind of fighting in conflict. God's word says that the source of conflict is bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in our heart. James three fourteen to sixteen. He says, if you think you have God's wisdom and you see bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, this is not wisdom from God. You may even have the truth of God. And we are not saying this morning, James is not saying to compromise the truth of God to avoid conflict. Jesus said he didn't come to bring peace but a sword. Doctrine divides. But we should even hold to our doctrine with humility. Because it's, it's God's doctrine. It's his truth, not our truth. We didn't come up with this. We can't take pride in it. If I'm going to boast, Paul says, I will boast in the cross of Christ because it's there where I look the worst. Nobody looks good at the foot of the cross because of us, he's on the cross. Nobody looks good at the foot of the cross. So if we're going to boast in anything, boast in the cross of Christ. It's a play on words. No one's really going to boast that I'm the worst sinner in the history of the world. Although we probably could boast about that too if we thought it would make us look more reverent or more humble. But he says the fruit of godly wisdom is pure, peaceable, gentle. You're hearing humility in this. Peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy. Full of mercy. I've... Receive so much mercy in my life, how can I not extend mercy in my relationships? Good fruit, unwavering, without hypocrisy. Unwavering, no matter what. No matter what happens in my relationships, I will not allow my pride to tear them apart. Unwavering, I'm committed to love. We will keep talking and praying until we resolve this in a way that would be honoring to God. Without hypocrisy. Hypocrisy to say one thing and do another. To sing about 
the fellowship of the saints and the unity of the Holy Spirit and then go out and fight with your fellow Christian. Well, we'll just sit on separate poles of the church and avoid one another. And then ask God to accept our sacrifice of worship. Wisdom from God always sows seeds of righteousness and peace. Where there's true peace, we know the wisdom of God rules the day. So where does conflict come from? External conflict always comes from internal conflict. External conflict always comes from internal conflict. Or as we like to say, if I bump into this glass and water spills out, why did the water spill out? Well, because you bumped the glass. No, because there's water in the glass. That's why water came out. The water was already in the glass. The external conflict of water coming out is proof that internal conflict was already there. What is the internal conflict? You lust, James says, you desire or crave. Don't think of lust as sexual. Lust is just a generic term for desiring or craving. And you do not have. It's really that simple. There's something you want and you can't have it. And so you're willing to commit murder. Oh, it doesn't start with murder, but it ends up there eventually. And so Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, if you hate your brother, you've committed murder. Why? Because you're wishing that person wasn't there. In that moment, they're standing in the way of you getting what you want. And if they were gone, you could get what you want. So you commit murder. Instead of seeing them as a child of God made in God's image with worth and dignity, they're either an adversary that must be eliminated or some kind of pawn that must be manipulated in order to get what I want. And don't think the things that we really want are tangible objects. Oh, no. That was when we were little. When you get older, the things we want are less obvious. Cain and Abel. What did Cain want? There's the first murder in the Bible, so that's where we need to go. What did Cain want so bad that he had to kill his brother? What did he want? Affirmation from God. Acceptance from God. God said, do you not know that I will accept you if you do what is right? Bring the sacrifice God has called you to bring and bring it with pure motives. God will accept your sacrifice. Instead of listening to God, all Cain could think about was, there's that guy over there, and he's getting all the praise from God, and if he wasn't there, I would get all the praise from God. And so he must go. I must eliminate him. And he committed murder. Actual murder. We're a little more covert than that. 
we marginalize people and push them out of the way and diminish their worth in our minds. Treat them as if if they're inferior to us. Treat them as if they're stupid. In order to justify the getting what we want. You envy and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. It's Hebrew parallelism. That line is the same as the line above it. You lust and do not have. You envy and cannot obtain. So you commit murder, so you fight and quarrel. He's likening fighting and quarreling with murdering. So the next time you and I get in a fight, I'm not talking about us together, but if I'm in the middle of a quarrel, realize that according to God's perspective, your fighting and shouting and arguing is tantamount to murder. If you can't speak with humility and love and gentleness, then you're committing murder. People don't murder one another with gentleness and peace and love and humility. Then he moves on to you do not have because you do not ask. Asking requires humility. It's saying, I know I don't deserve this, but I would really like this. Could you please? Do you think maybe we could try it this way? This is really important to me, but I know I don't have to have this. But it would go a long way if if we could. That's a completely different tone than, oh, we're doing it this way. This way is the best way. I already went ahead and did it because it was the best way. I didn't need to ask. And then he says, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. So you can ask in a way that isn't humble. You can ask for things in a way that is selfish. You're going to spend it on your own pleasures. You deceive yourself into thinking, I want this for the glory of God and the advancement of His kingdom, but really it's for your own glory and the advancement of your kingdom. This is a very poetic section of Scripture because it's the, you do not have, so you commit murder. You do not, there's all this parallelism, but boy, in the Greek, I wish... I was almost going to read it to you, but I thought that wouldn't accomplish what I wanted it to accomplish. Just know the ending of many of these words end in a t sound. Very harsh to the ear. Very accusatory. Very rebuking. Chose these words on purpose, inspired by the Holy Spirit. James isn't pulling punches here. He's letting us know this quarreling and arguing and conflict has got to stop at all costs. It's terrible. It's dishonoring to Christ. 
And it's so antagonistic to what the gospel stands for that he's calling into question our faith. If this is what you really believe, that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, would come down and die for us to end the war, to reconcile us to himself, then how could you go about committing war with one another? Don't you know this is why Jesus came to die, to put an end to conflict, to war, to separation? Don't sing about it and brag in it and then go and do the opposite. I mean, come on. I know your family. It's the same as mine. We're apt to get in a fight in the minivan as soon as we get in the car after church. We're tired. We're hungry. The preacher went way too long. <laughs> That's okay. We can extend grace because when we're tired, we understand. We're, we're talking about this deep-seated hatred conflict. I must win at all costs. Nobody wins in that kind of fight. So I want to give you some steps here. We're going to take a break before we go on to the second half. Just some practical ways to diagnose your heart during conflict. Ask these three questions. Number one, what do you want so bad that you are resorting to war and murder? What is it that you want? And it's really not the thing you think you want. So you're going to have to dig a little deeper. What is it you're really craving? Let me give you some examples to help you. Just some benign, hypothetical, not thinking of anybody, common examples we see in the church. And if you think I'm talking about you, it's just because they're common. I'm not. I have nobody in mind here. We'll start with the men. Yeah. Let's say there's a ministry position opening up, maybe a deaconship or an eldership or something, and this man would like to be asked... And yet he's telling everyone, well, you know, I'm really busy and I don't don't have time. And people actually take him literally and decide not to ask him. And he's upset now. I can't believe they picked so-and-so over me. I've been at this church far longer and I've, I've, I've been serving humbly for years. And the conflict internally starts to spill out externally in his relationships. And he's grumpy, he's upset, and finally, we have to go to another church. Sad. Oh, pastor, cut it out. What a ridiculous example that would never happen. But you know that's not the case. It happens all the time. So what does he want? Does he really want that ministry position? Is that what he wants really bad? No, that's not what he wants. He wants respect. He wants affirmation from 
other men. Maybe he wants the title and the respect he thinks comes with the title. I'll tell you, the higher the title at this church, the harder you're going to be working. And the lower you better be willing to go. That's not to exalt our elders. It's just the elder board isn't a place where you come in and bring your business acumen to make great decisions. You better be ready to roll up your sleeves and wash some feet. But we need those men. So the Bible says if you desire eldership, you desire a good thing. By the way, we need more elders. Let's take an example for the ladies. Great events coming up. Some outreach to the community. It's going to be a wonderful light for Jesus in our community. People are going to come in. Maybe there's going to be a dinner, and you know, the ladies really like to decorate the tables just so. And and one of the ladies has this great idea for the way the tables should look. And she uh, recruits some helpers, and she lets everyone know her her great idea for the centerpieces. And they're all thinking, really? Already bought it. Already bought it. And we're not getting reimbursed, so I would like for all of you to, to help pay for these centerpieces. And uh, another lady suggests, well, maybe we could... Do you know, tweak them a little and maybe a little smaller. <laughs> and now she's offended. And she gets, says some things she sh- uh, shouldn't say. And the other lady's offended now, too. And you're, you go to mediate and you think, well, what do they want? One wants this kind of centerpiece and one wants this kind. No, that's not what they want. Because really, would we fight and quarrel and war and destroy relationships over centerpieces? There's got to be something deeper going on. And you dig a little deeper and you realize this first lady put her whole reputation on the line by saying, look at this beautiful thing I've created. Isn't this wonderful? I want everyone to say, wow, you are wonderfully creative. Look at this. And they weren't as excited as she was about her own work. It's her pride getting in the way. And the second lady was thinking, all these people from the community are going to come in and see these awful centerpieces, and my name's going to be attached to it. And they're going to think I'm lame. Right? Oh, pastor, stop it. These things don't happen. Of course they happen. And we should catch ourselves and repent, but we don't. And it escalates and escalates and escalates until the whole event is off. Or it's on, but it's so ugly and there's such a cloud over it that it's not a light to the community at all. They're going to pick up on the tension when they walk in. Because one lady's walking around whispering to everyone, just so you know, I didn't come up with the centerpieces. The point of the examples is to help you to see that it had nothing to do with the ministry position or the centerpieces. It's the pride underneath that causes conflict. So, number two, you need to ask, why do you want this thing so bad that you would dishonor God and destroy relationships? What is worth that? 
What is worth that? I can't think of anything worth dishonoring God and destroying relationships. So there must be bitter bitter jealousy or selfish ambition going on under the surface. Number three, have you humbly asked for the thing that you want really bad? Hey, I'd really like to serve in this position. But if there's somebody better equipped, then I would be okay with that. You have to be able to say that. I've got these great ideas. Well, I think it's a great idea for centerpieces. Ladies, what, what do you think? You know, be gentle. You know, be honest. Well, they're kind of so big, you're not going to be able to see anyone on the other side of the table. <laughs> so, oh, 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 I didn't think of that. Okay, well, we could tone them down a little. Conflict over, no war. Oh, Pastor, you're so naive. (laughs) No, we can do this, people. We can't, but the power of the Holy Spirit working in us can do this, can make us humble. The power that raised Christ from the dead can do this in and through us. In our own strength, in our own flesh, we can't get along. We can on a superficial surface kind of level, but we're just waiting. It's only a matter of time before we step on each other's toes or stick our feet in our mouth. James is so serious about this that he levels maybe the worst accusation he can at us. He calls us adulteresses. Before you get offended as a lady, I know some of your Bibles say adulterers, or some say adulterous people, or some say adulteresses and adulterers, but those extra words aren't in the original. It's adulteresses. Not that only women commit adultery. He's hearkening back to the Old Testament when God tells His people, I am the groom, you are the bride, and when you chase after idols, which aren't really gods at all, but in your pride, you're exalting yourself above God, you are committing adultery. Read the book of Hosea. Prophet Hosea, he says, I want you to marry an adulterous woman, a prostitute, to illustrate to Israel what their unfaithfulness looks like. God is the faithful one in this relationship. We are the unfaithful ones. James is saying, you adulteresses, you can't be friends with the world and friends with God. You can't exalt your wisdom and say, I trust in God's wisdom. He's setting out two polemic, opposite ways of life. He's saying you can't have it both ways. You can't worship the Prince of Peace and cause conflict in his house. 
Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, meaning do things the world's way. Isn't it the world's way to exalt oneself, to be prideful, to advance my own agenda, to dig in my heels on my own opinions, to scratch and claw and climb over everybody to get to the top? This is the world's way. I don't care, again, what political party you're part of. Whether I turn on CNN or Fox News, it's all polemics all the time. It shouldn't be that way in God's house. If you want to be friends with the world, you need to know you're making yourself an enemy of God. He opposes the proud. But the good news is He gives grace to the humble. And you're saying, well, I want grace, but I don't think I need to be humble. He only gives grace to the humble. Again, if you are lacking in humility, then you haven't focused on the cross for very long. James 2.22, earlier he says, you see that faith was active along with his works, meaning Abraham, and faith was completed by his works. Remember we talked about we're saved by faith in faith alone, but saving faith ought to produce works, the works that are proof that we have saving faith. In this case, the works are that we don't engage in wars and conflicts and quarrels. When saving faith has its perfect work in you, it will produce peace. A real settled, I love God, I love my neighbor. Nothing is so bad between us that we have to war and fight and commit murder over it. I think in our case, murder is terminating a relationship. Terminating relationship. There's nothing so bad that we would have to terminate a relationship. As long as two people humbly come back to the table... And careful when you come to the place where you say, well, I've humbled myself. I am waiting for them to humble themselves. Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. When was he called a friend of God? This was after he put Isaac on the altar. So, in a sense, what is your Isaac? What is it you need to put on the altar? What is the one thing that you're saying, God, if I don't have this, I can't be happy? I will war and scream and commit murder to get it. Well, let's leave out the committing murder, but I will strive and I won't rest until I get it. If Jesus is in the blank, that's a good thing. But anything else in that blank is your God, your false God. Idols of the heart. Have to have it. I deserve it. Abraham had such a settled faith and trust in God's goodness, in His mercy, and in His grace, and in His love for him, that he knew he could put Isaac on the altar, and God would either provide a substitute, which he ultimately did, or he would raise Isaac from the dead. 
Because the promise God made to Abraham was that from your seed I will make a great nation. And Isaac was the only seed. And you have to understand in that culture, having a son meant everything. Everything to have a son to pass on the family name. That's why you see so many women in the Old Testament begging God to open my womb and give me a son. I'm a nobody until I provide a son for my husband. Why Sarah was willing for her husband to be with her maidservant to give him a son. How upset Rachel was that she couldn't give her husband a son. All right, we're going to have to put you in the seminary classroom for about five minutes for verse 5. One of the most difficult verses in all the Bible to translate. Okay? So, look up on the screen, and the ESV says, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us? In this case, he is God, and he's yearning or striving or wanting jealously the spirit, lowercase s, that he has made to dwell in us. So your spirit, not the Holy Spirit, your spirit God put in you when you were conceived to give you life. The, the, the spirit in all of us, our, our spirit. The one that leaves your body when you die. The NAS, which is what I preach from. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires, again, he is God and he is jealously desiring the Spirit, capital S, which he has made or caused to dwell in us. So they're thinking this verse says, the Holy Spirit living inside of us when we come to saving faith, God is jealously desiring that spirit that causes us to trust God and be humble and obey His commands versus our old nature that is prideful and sinful and doesn't want to obey commands. And God won't share His Holy Spirit with our spirit. And so he jealously desires the Holy Spirit in us. That's another possibility. The NIV says, Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the Spirit, lowercase s, our Spirit, envies intensely? Now all of a sudden the Spirit's the subject of the clause, not God, and it's our Spirit that is jealously striving or jealously yearning. And then the King James says, Do you do ye think that the Scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? The NIV and the King James basically are saying the same thing. So what's going on here? We want to know what God's Word means so we can apply it to our life. And yet we have three completely different translations here. 
And you can't interpret a verse correctly until you have the right translation in front of you. This isn't to say that you shouldn't be confident in your Bible. This isn't to say that God's Word isn't inerrant. In the original, there was no problem. James knew what he was talking about. And probably his hearers knew exactly what he was talking about. Why the problem? Here's your Greek lesson today. In English, the subject comes first, and then the verb, and then the direct object. Brent preaches a sermon. Brent's the subject, preaches is the verb, sermon's the object. If we replace the order and say, a sermon preaches Brent, doesn't make much sense. But now the sermon is the subject and and Brent's the object. In Greek, the word order doesn't determine what is the subject and what is the object. It's the ending you put on the end of a word. Interesting. So you can move words anywhere you want in the sentence, and because of its ending, we'll know what role it's playing in the sentence. Makes it a more versatile language than our own. Also in Greek, unlike English, every noun in Greek has a gender. A noun can be male or female or neuter. And most of the time, the genders have really nothing to do with the word itself. Spanish is a bit like that, right? But I don't think there's neuter in Spanish. It's just male or female. And you know that in Spanish, the male endings are usually O-S or or O, and the female endings are A-S, unless you're talking about your hand, and then it's la-mano. I don't know why that is. Well, Greek has its own quirky aspects. The neuter endings in Greek, the ending for when a word's a subject and the ending for when a word's an object are the exact same endings. And the word for spirit is neuter, pneuma. Or we would drop the P in English and just say pneuma. We don't know if pneuma, pneuma, is acting as the subject or is the object. If it's the subject, then it's the Holy Spirit that's yearning jealously. If it's the object, then God is yearning jealously for the Spirit. That's why the different translations. Well, then why is it sometimes capital S Spirit and sometimes lowercase s Spirit? Well, in the Greek, they didn't capitalize Spirit. If they wanted... To say Holy Spirit, they could put the word holy in front of spirit, but sometimes they just use the word spirit, and context would help you decide, but our context here makes it really hard to decide which spirit he's talking about. Okay, so you're a pastor or a Bible study leader prepping James 4 or 5 for your lesson. Here's what you would do next. Start looking at some clues. First of all, when James says... Do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose when it says this? You're expecting what's in quotes to be a verse from the Bible. And so you'd go look up that verse, and that would probably tell you everything you need to know about the verse. Guess what? This verse doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible or in the Apocrypha or the Pseudepigrapha or any of those other books that aren't really books of the Bible. We can't find this anywhere. Is James just making stuff up? Heavens no. That can't be the answer. So move on to number two here. This 
The word for jealous is never the word that's used to describe God's jealousy. In fact, the word for jealous here is always the negative, petty, sinful kind of jealousy. So to me, that immediately eliminates saying that God yearns jealously. So to me, that eliminates the ESV and the NAS translation. I believe that the Spirit is the object of the sentence. And that James is saying that the Bible says that our spirit is jealous and envious all the time. Yes, by nature. And I could show you hundreds of passages in the Bible that tell us that. In fact, that's the message of the Bible when it comes to humanity. Who are we? Post-Genesis 3, prideful, jealous, envious people. The spirit God put in us to give us life has been tainted by sin. And it makes us envy intensely or jealously. I don't want to attach an adjective or an adverb to God that always in the Bible is negative and sinful and petty. Now, I say that with humility because the translators of the ESV and NAS are far smarter than I am. But you can read, I must have read a dozen commentaries here, and even all the commentators had to land somewhere, but they admitted that this verse was incredibly difficult to translate. And James only uses the word penuma one other time in this letter, and when he does, he's talking about our spirit, not the Holy Spirit. So I think that's got a way in, too. So what is James saying here? And I think this fits the tone of the whole sermon here. He's saying, where does conflict come? It comes from inside us, our jealous, envious spirit, wanting what we want, wanting what other people have. And he's anticipating people saying, no, that's not where this conflict came from, James. He's anticipating the counter-argument. And so he says, oh, oh, what? You think God would just write in his word that our spirit is full of envy and jealousy if he, if he didn't mean it? If that wasn't true about us? I think, I think that's what he's saying here. He's not pointing to an actual verse. He's saying, isn't this the way God has portrayed us in his word? Isn't this our problem? That the spirit he put in us has been tainted by sin and it's full of envy and jealousy? And I think he's also pointing to the next verse in 4.6, which is actually a verse in the Bible. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Why would God have to put that in his word if there weren't proud people that God opposes who need grace? Perhaps that's the verse James is speaking of. He's alluding to the next verse in the letter. Makes sense to me based on the tone of the letter and the, and the message. He's not leaving any room for any of us to hide. Everybody is prideful, 
And God is opposed to our pride, but... We heard one speaker at the Shepherds Conference say, thank God for the buts in the Bible. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If the verse just stopped with God is opposed to the proud, guess what, friends? We're doomed. But He gives grace to the humble. He's calling sinners to repentance. He's calling us to repentance. James 4, 7, Submit, therefore, to God. What does submit mean? To willfully place yourself underneath another. Hupa tasso, hupa beneath, tasso to place. Place yourself beneath. Not, not in every case because somebody's better than you or smarter or wiser, but if God says to submit to one another, then there are times that we must all submit to one another. And certainly, we all must submit to God. Our natural man has put ourselves above God. We need to humble ourselves and submit to God. This is how you resist the devil. This isn't some strange demon-fighting technique How does the devil tempt us? Through our pride. Humble yourself and you will resist the devil. He's got nothing on us if we don't give in to pride. Look how he tempted Christ the three times in the wilderness. And Jesus quoted scripture, humbling himself beneath God's word. Well, the scripture says this, so that's what I'm going to listen to. Fascinating because Jesus is the Word made flesh. He could have said anything and it would have instantly become Scripture. But for our example, he quotes the Old Testament Scripture, submits to God's Word as we should, and the devil fled. Draw near to God. How do you draw near to God? Everybody wants to draw near to God. It sounds great. It sounds poetic. I could say, let's all draw near to God. He'll draw near to us. Amen. We'd all go home and get in the car and go, well, how do you draw near to God? He's invisible. Where is he? How do I draw near? By humbling yourself. Because if God opposes the proud, pushes away the proud, then what will draw us near to God? Humility. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Sinners and double-minded are in parallel here. James is calling sinners the double-minded. Aren't we all double-minded at times? Cleanse your hands, so that's your deeds. Purify your hearts, that's your motives. Be miserable and mourn, that's your mouth. Weep and wail. In the Jewish mind, repentance includes the whole person, deeds, motives, and speech. It's not just enough to say, I'm sorry. You show your sorry by your deeds and your words, and then you check your heart and make sure you're actually sorry. And if you're not, go back before the Lord until you're sorry in your heart. 
Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. True repentance always includes godly sorrow over your sins, not worldly sorrow. I'm sorry I got caught, or I'm sorry that came out of my mouth. I'm sorry you're so insensitive or so insecure that you were offended by what I said. I was just teasing you. Now all of a sudden you're the sinner instead of the person who actually sinned. That's not true repentance. Don't laugh it off. Turn your laughter into mourning. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and this is the beautiful promise, and He will exalt you. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. And He was not going to exalt you the way you wanted to be exalted. That was the problem, was you were exalting yourself and your pride. Humble yourself. Sit at the end of the table. God will call you to the head of the table. Be a foot washer. Be a peacemaker. Let's end with Philippians 2. I know you know the verse, but let's just soak it in. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. You cannot obey this command on your own. Nobody considers others more important than themselves on their own. It can't be done on your own. Well, how do I do that then? How do I consider others more important than myself? Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God... It's Paul's way of saying he didn't need to humble himself. He is the exalted one. He has no reason that he would need to repent or humble himself. And yet, the one who deserves to be exalted willingly humbled himself, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, a slave, and being made in the likeness of uh, men, he became like us, which I know in our pride doesn't sound like such a bad thing. But if you're the perfect, omnipotent, holy God becoming a man, is really a step down, a big step down. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. This is our example, is our Christ. If he, being the one that didn't need to do that, did that on our behalf, how much more should we be able to humble ourselves, knowing that good will come out of it? The kind of good that God says, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the exaltation the Bible's talking about. Not some title in the church, or I got my way. That God was glorified, and at the end of the day, at the end of the day, at my funeral, if all anyone could say about me is, he sure loved Jesus, and he loved other people. Wouldn't that be enough? Nice, brief eulogy. Boy, he sure loved Jesus and loved other people.
And if, by the way, you also accomplished great things for the kingdom, that's, that's gravy. But you can't accomplish great things for the kingdom without loving Jesus and loving others. So, I'm sure you were recently involved in a conflict. Maybe this morning. And perhaps one might brew up this week. Instead of our normal course of action, our default position where we start fighting, laying out our case, putting our evidence together, let's try God's wisdom. Let's humble ourselves, ask those questions. What is it that I want so bad? Do I really need this? Is this for God's glory and His kingdom, or is this for my own pride, selfish ambition, bitter jealousy? I know these things get ingrained and they're deep, and sometimes conflict gets so deep we think nothing will reconcile us. Well, nothing on a human level can, but the power that raised Christ from the dead can change anyone, can change any heart, can change any pattern of behavior. As long as we keep doing things the way we've been doing them, why would we expect a different result? Let's humble ourselves before the cross and do things God's way, not just because His way is better, because Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. Amen. Father, Teach us to be humble like your Son. Jesus, we acknowledge you're the way, the truth, and the life. We don't understand how God in human flesh could not fight back against his adversaries, and yet you loved your enemies, even asking your Father to forgive them from the cross. Holy Spirit, do this amazing work in us. Override our sinful spirit Engulf us in your love and in your grace and in your mercy so that love and grace and mercy oozes out of us. In your name we pray, amen. Amen.